working our way through the book of Revelation. Just a few weeks left. This is part 26. We're going to start looking tonight at uh, a really interesting section of the book, the 20th chapter, where you have the whole concept of the millennium, the thousand-year reign, and the many, many uh, different thoughts that sincere, devout Christians have on that. And we'll touch on some of those in just, uh, in just a minute. So I'm going to read 15 verses because these are pretty important verses where a lot of different discussion kind of uh, evolves and bounces out of it. Millennium, resurrection, judgment will be this Sunday night and probably next Sunday night as, as well with the same text. Revelation 21. Not 21, Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, you'll remember, from Revelation 12, where the dragon is clearly identified as Satan. So that one is one of the easy symbols to pick out because we're, in a way, we aren't told with many other symbols. With that one, he says the dragon which is Satan, so he doesn't leave it open to any other interpretation. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, so all these names, bound him for, and here is the first time you have the phrase in the Bible. This is the only chapter that talks about the thousand years in the whole Bible, and here's the first reference to it. Bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Again, remember, this is a vision. He's describing what he sees in a vision. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years, there it is again, were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And that raises all sorts of questions for premillenarians. Get your tongue around that one. Four. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So this is during that thousand years that he talks about. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. We read about that earlier in the letter. Who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This, is, this gets really important in here. So here's a group. They came to life, this group. They came to life. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, so here's another group. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So you have some coming to life before, right? Some coming to life after. Everybody see that? That's kind of an important point. This is the first resurrection. That is the one before the millennium. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. 
they will reign with him, here it is again, for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, as we read earlier, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. It's a vision. It's a vision. He's not, he's not seeing an actual event here. It's a vision that he sees. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire. Now this is different from the bottomless pit where he got out of, was allowed out. Now he's, he's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night so they aren't annihilated in this place. And that's important because these aren't spiritual beings. These are created beings. Only God is eternal. The angels, all the angelic beings, they were all created beings. Satan was a created being at one point. It's easy to forget that. And these are all in this lake of fire, and they are tormented day and night forever and ever, and they're created entities, much like we are created entities. And that argues against the whole concept of annihilationism, which is widely held among uh, a lot of prominent writers and authors today. That, I shouldn't do this, that the, the righteous... Um, are with Christ, eternal life forever and ever, conscious, eternal existence. But the wicked, they're thrown into the lake of fire and they're simply, uh, they cease to exist. They are just consumed. It's called conditional immortality. In other words, the righteous get immortality. The wicked are just burned up and they're gone. A lot of very prominent writers right now hold that view and it gets, it gets really hard to hold when you look at the text because Jesus talked about people being thrown into the place prepared. Jesus said the place prepared for the devil and his angels. That's right from the lips of Jesus. Well, now you're reading about that place where Satan and they are thrown and they're tormented day and night forever and ever. They aren't annihilated. Jesus says about Judas, it would be better for that person if he had never been born. Well, annihilated is exactly the same as never been born. He, he means something else. First, okay, back to this. <clears throat> 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They were there earlier. They're still there. They're not burnt up. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence. Earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Remember in our book of Hebrews, he talks about the things being shaken, the things that remain. That's, that's the way the writer of Hebrews talks about it. And that's what you're seeing here. 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne and the books were opened. 
And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's an obvious uh, flow of thought from chapter 19. We were away from this last Sunday night with worship night. By the way, what a good job, eh? Worship night is excellent. But the flow of thought from 19 to chapter 20, before the establishment of Christ's eternal kingdom, his enemies have to be judged. And naturally... um, The most detailed descriptions of judgment center around the most uh, public and notable enemies of the cause of Christ. Chapter 19 closed with that vivid uh, judgment supper of God on the beast, Antichrist, the false prophet, and all the kings of the earth who yielded to the powers of Babylon to tempt and pull people away from devotion to Christ. And that that chapter ends up with that. I mean, it's, it's a vision. I know it's a vision, but it's sure not portraying something pleasant when the birds of the air come and devour the flesh of all the enemies. It's a hard chapter to read. So now chapter 20, it resumes the theme of the judgment of God in Christ, and it will focus on the dragon, Satan, the cause, the one behind, the manipulator, behind all of rebellion against God and his Christ. So this focus on the judgment of Satan is described in two phases. So point number one. I want to talk to you about the nature of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium. Because there's by no means unanimous opinion on this. You might think there is because you've held whatever view you hold and you've always just assumed, well, that's the one everybody holds. I was like that all through Bible school. But it's really not the case. It hasn't been the case throughout church history. This chapter is the one place that specifically uses that phrase a thousand years to describe the reign of Christ here on earth. So you have it in in, uh, verse 2. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years. You have it in verse 3. Threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. It's in verse 4. Saw thrones seated on them were those to whom... The authority to judge was committed, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. They're not lost. They don't just disappear. Who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead. They came to life, reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 5, same thing. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. It's in verse 6 and it's in verse 7. You get the point. It's repeated over and over again in this chapter 
So whatever you do with the details, you have to come to terms in some way with this barrage, this sudden barrage of references to the thousand years. I, I'm, I'm not out to uh, complicate things, but I do want us to at least be informed. There have been and are, throughout the history of the Christian church, three different views on the millennium. There have been those who are post-millennial. I'll explain these terms. Those who have been a-millennial and those who are pre-millennial. And it's not really all that complicated. Let me just try and summarize what we're talking about. Post-millennialists. The word post in front of it, it kind of gives it away. With, with slight variations, post-millennialists believe that the second coming, the bodily return of Christ to earth, will not take place until the kingdom of God has been established by the church. That will take place during the millennium. The church will establish the kingdom of God at the end, post, post-millennial, Jesus will come back after the thousand years are finished. So, so in post-millennial interpretation, chapter 19 doesn't describe the literal return of Christ in judgment, but it's a, it's a picture. It's a symbolic picture of, of the triumph of the church and Christian righteousness through the presence and ministry of Christ through his church on earth. So in other words, the kingdom of God is established by the church before Jesus actually returns. The millennium comes first. The return of Christ comes second, post-millennial. The way that usually works, by the way, post-millennialism usually relies on, in the latter days, um, the arising of a special class, usually a special class of apostles and prophets who will, who will raise up uh, uh, a more advanced, accelerated uh, Christ-likeness in might and power so that what will happen during the, millennial, during the millennium is, is uh, Christian laws will get put into place. Christians will be elected to power. They will hold office. Um, Policies will change around Christian principles. There will be uh, an accelerated pace of evangelism. The gospel will spread through the earth. So there'll be the church triumphant during the millennium. They argue, for example, Jesus comes back. Jesus comes back for his bride, they will say. He's not coming back for a little girl. So it's a mature bride, you see. The, the church will be, in all of its glory, it will be triumphing in Christ over the forces that oppose Christ in this world. It'll happen through the church. It'll happen through the body of Christ. The view was a lot more popular before two world wars. The view was a lot more popular before the accelerated secularism of our day and the decrease of, of uh, righteousness in statutes and laws. 
But there are still people who hold to post-devout Christians. They're not heretics. They're not backslidden. They're not bad people. They would hold to the view that Jesus comes back after the church has done its job and most of the world will be turned to Christ. Amillennialists, as the awe amillennialists don't actually believe in a literal millennium on earth, either before or after the return of Christ. Amillennialists believe that the, when John talks about this thousand-year reign of Christ, he's, he's, he's talking symbolically about the reign of Christ in the hearts of believers. So this binding of Satan isn't a binding of Satan in a literal sense. It's, it's It's the triumph of redemption and grace in the heart. Victory over sin. Inward spiritual life. Paul talks about being risen with Christ. They would say, well, that's what the millennium is. That's what the millennium is all about. The the first resurrection that the Apostle John describes in 4 and 5 is usually understood as um, the believer's conversion to Christ. Paul says, we were all dead in sin made alive in Christ through the power of the cross. There are also some amillennialists who interpret the millennium as not having anything to do with this earth at all. So they see that reference in John 20. I read it to you because we read the whole thing of these souls that were beheaded, martyred for Christ. So they see the millennium. It's a reign of the saints, but not on earth. It's the reign of like my dad who has gone to be with Jesus. And those saints, they reign with Christ in a way that is unhindered, unblocked, direct access to the throne of God. So the millennium is their reign with Christ in the intermediate state between their death and the second coming of Christ. All millennialists would, would, would have included people like Martin Luther. Jonathan Edwards. They were all amillennialists. Premillennial is, is where the majority of evangelicals probably would align themselves today. And it's the view that Revelation 20 is all about the future. It's, sorry to be the big words, but it's, it's eschatological. It's all about something that is yet to happen. It's not something that has already happened or is happening now. It deals with events that are still to come. This is the view that I lean to. I'm hesitant to be sort of Joe dogmatic on it. I don't think anyone's salvation rests on it. It's the view that I lean to. I still think it's the view that best fits with the flow of chapters 18, 19, 20 in the book of Revelation. They, they seem to compose kind of a string of connected visions, a series of visions dealing with the destruction of Christ's enemies. First Babylon in 18, the beast and the false prophet in 19, and then Satan in 20. That seems to me just to be the flow of those three chapters if you kind of just take them together. But it should be said, and I want to be fair, there are fine, devoted, Bible-believing Christians in each of those schools of interpretation. 
I find the premillennial view more satisfactory when you take the whole context of 18, 19, 20 together. And so tonight when we proceed, that's the view I'm assuming in the study, though I recognize it's not the only view on the table. Everybody okay with that? Okay. We're well into it now. Don't panic. Point number two. The binding of Satan, the first resurrection, and the millennial kingdom. I want to, though I read this before, I know. I want to read these verses again because I want you to see the the flow of ideas. So I'm going to read six verses. Revelation 20, starting at verse 1. Follow along. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Just pause there. You know how I'm always making these wisecrack jokes about angels and these, these wimpy little cherubs that you see on cards with their little cute baby faces and wings and stuff? I want you to notice something. Here is one angel, all right? This is one angel who comes down, grabs Satan by the scruff of the neck, Satan, and throws him into a bottomless pit. See, that's an angel. He seized the dragon. I like seized. I like that. Seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he, this is Satan, must be released for a little while. Why that would be, we're going to talk about. Then I saw thrones. So we're into the thousand years. Satan is seized, cast into this bottomless pit, sealed up for, it says, a thousand years. Now, at the same time, there are these thrones. Verse 4. Seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or on their hands. They came to life. This is why I have a hard time with the amillennial view that it's describing just the reign of these beheaded souls under the altar. Because when it talks about them coming to life, they were conscious before. Revelation, you see this conversation that they have. How long, Lord, before you avenge? The coming to life is, is, is the resurrection of these people. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life. So we know what coming to life means now, right? It means the resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ They will reign with him a thousand years. Those that are raised in the first resurrection will reign with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead will be raised at the close of the thousand years. So here's my thoughts on these verses, and and I'll just wind things down. I want you to notice, again, the power of one angelic being. 
to confine Satan for a thousand years. Now, John has already mentioned this bottomless pit. We saw it in chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, where these demonic beings were released upon the earth. The bottomless pit was also pictured as the home of the beast in 11.7, Antichrist. Now, those details are important because they describe the nature of the binding that Satan experiences here. This is not his eternal punishment, per se. It's, it's confinement to his specific realm. I don't know what that means. But there's a difference between being shut up in this pit and eventually being cast into the lake of fire. Those aren't the same thing when you read the passage. So after a thousand years, Satan is loosed for a short season, it says. This is my opinion, okay? Personal opinion. I'm not... um, It's not a fighting issue to me. If someone says a thousand years need to be like exactly 1,000 years, a lot of the numbers in the book of Revelation uh, we know are to, are to be interpreted symbolically, kind of loosely. It might be a thousand years. I don't think it needs to be pressed too literally. It's a vision. But they certainly do describe some prescribed length of time. I think that much is fair for anybody to say. Some length of time determined by God himself. And after this time span, it says Satan is loosed for a season. One of the reasons I prefer the premillennial interpretation, it's very difficult to explain this releasing of Satan If you're an amillennialist, an amillennialist who believes that the binding of Satan is what happens when Jesus Christ comes into your heart. That's when Satan is bound. Well, it's very hard to explain this releasing of Satan in that sense. Because Christ's victory over Satan in my life wasn't a temporary victory. It was a permanent victory. It's a forever victory. And its effects aren't removed or suspended. That's one of the problems I have with the amillennial view. But premillennialists, we have a problem too. Because people come up and they'll say, so, okay, Don, I get asked this a lot. Satan's bound for this, this length of time, thousand years. And then, and then they let him go. But what is that all about? What possible reason could there be for that? I don't know of any place in the Bible that gives you the explanation I'm giving you. This is my explanation. I think one of the reasons could be. You have this period, the millennium, where Satan is bound. He's bound in the sense, we're told, that he doesn't deceive the nations anymore. Okay? Doesn't mean the effects of the fall are eradicated in all human beings. He's bound in terms of not being able to deceive and lead the nations astray. And so you have this idyllic period, however long it is, a thousand years, where Satan's bound, saints ruling and reigning, Christ physically present here on the earth. In other words, what you have is an absolutely 
perfect environment, much like the Garden of Eden type of environment. And Satan is released, and what you're going to see is a perfect environment doesn't change people. Only the blood of Christ changes people. And we will have sort of vivid proof that just setting up a perfect kingdom with Christ and whomever are on these thrones, ruling and reigning, and Satan bound not to deceive the nations. You would think everything will be absolutely perfect forever and ever, but it isn't the case because it isn't a perfect environment that affects people. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses our hearts. I think that might be one of the reasons that you have this brief season where it will be vividly shown all over again that man's problems are in here. And we can't change that. It is easy, isn't it, to have the view that, boy, if only we get the right political party in power, if only we get the right person, boy, if only we could, if we could ever do away with abortion in the land, and if we could ever maybe change the policies regarding same-sex marriage, and if we could ever do this, we can fix this. No, you can't. No, you can't. The Bible says, Old King James, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Things aren't going to get better and better. So Satan loosed for a short season. Something else you see here, saints will take their assigned place to rule and reign with Christ. You see it in that fourth verse. I don't know what this will look like. I don't know how this happens. I saw thrones. I saw thrones. Now, I don't know that there will be literal thrones. I think that relates to that period and the way, the way John, with, with kings and emperors, the way he would see authority pictured in various you know, political systems. It would be different in our culture today. But somehow, thrones, seated on them, were those to whom authority to judge was committed And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Christ, for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark in their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so John sees this group being made up of those who had judgment committed to them, it says. And he sees those who were martyred. He sees those coming to life, the last part of verse 4. And then they're reigning with Christ a thousand years. And then... Verse 5 immediately separates these resurrected souls from those who wouldn't experience resurrection for a thousand years. So verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. It's not, you know, of crucial importance, but this verse is perhaps the main reason I'm more inclined to the premillennial position than the other two options. All millennialists, and even more so post-millennialists, have a difficult task with those two resurrections. Because they like to say that the first resurrection is conversion. And the second resurrection is a literal, physical resurrection. The, The problem is, it's exactly the same Greek word for the one resurrection and the other. It... It's just so arbitrary to say this one is spiritual and this one's literal. 
Because if you can take two words, two exact same words, and give one, one meaning and give the same word another meaning, well, then language kind of loses any significance after a while. I can't see any way to do this from the context of verse 4 and 5. That fifth verse begins with these words, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. I know there's symbols. Maybe the thousand years is literally a thousand. Maybe it isn't. But the words, the rest of the dead, that's not complicated. They did not come to life. So I know what resurrection means. Until the thousand years were ended. Whatever this period of time, it's at the end of it. So if language means anything at all, John means to tell me that both resurrections deal with the same kind of death. He's saying some of the dead were raised in the first resurrection. Later on, the rest of the dead were raised. And there's just no way to get around that, I don't think. By the way, there's a little bit of a dilemma here. I hope it doesn't upset you. First resurrection before the millennium is at the second coming of Jesus. Okay? First resurrection at the coming of Jesus. Second resurrection after the millennium. Right? That's what we've been studying tonight. The problem for some is there really... It, if the first resurrection... It's what it's called. It's called, right in the Bible, the first resurrection. If that happens right when Jesus comes back, it's pretty hard to do this pre-trib rapture thing. Where saints get raised and translated and Jesus comes and we're raptured. Because the, the, first, the first resurrection takes place when? It's at the second coming. That's what it says. So I find that another thing that's awfully hard to work into this. Now, if that's your belief, God bless you. I, I think it's hard to make that one work, and we, we studied that quite a bit in this series. You know what you hold in front of you? You hold in front of you, when I read this, you can get bogged down in all sorts of things. And some of it, I think, is important to know. I think it's important to have, at least in broad strokes, post-millennialism, with the church conquering and reigning, with apostles and prophets, and the triumph of of the church on earth bringing in the kingdom and then Jesus comes. Okay, that view. All millennialists with it being uh, the first resurrection is conversion to Christ and the millennium is Christ's rule and reign in our hearts. And premillennialism where you have a literal return of Christ, a period of time reigning on the earth and the final resurrection and judgment at the close. I think you should need those broad strokes so you know what people are talking about. But what you take home from a church service like this is uh, God has his plan. And it's not out of whack. And he will accomplish his purposes. And the biggest battles are spiritual. And the enemy is going to be defeated. And if I can't sort out all the details, if I know that much, I feel, I feel pretty good about it. I like, I like having, I like having, uh, I like having God at the wheel of history, don't you? Let's pray.